Hey everybody, Travis here. Uh, just a fair warning, Chris was having some mic issues just before he was getting on a call with Mr. Hudson and had to use his Apple AirPods instead, so the audio quality is a little diminished and it gets kind of funky at the end. You'll hear Chris echoing a little bit, a little bit, but uh, it's not a huge deal. It's mostly Mr. Hudson talking and you know what, when you got Mr. Hudson on the other line, you don't worry about the fact that you have to use subpar equipment. You just jump in. So uh, forgive us for that, but enjoy this interview. Everybody wants to know what I would do if I didn't win. I guess we'll never know. So keep it locked. I don't get enough of it. Jesus just rose again. Listen to the kids. Welcome to Watching the Throne, a lyrical analysis of Kanye West. My name is Chris Lambert, and today we have a very special guest, Mr. Hudson. Mr. Hudson, thank you for being here, and uh, introduce yourself to anybody who may not know you. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm Mr. Hudson. I'm an Englishman, which you might, might be guessing by my accent. Um, I am a songwriter, a producer, beat maker, an occasional DJ, um, and yeah, I'm just I'm a music guy. Um, I'm from Birmingham, England, but I've done a lot of work in the in the states um, and here in London, and I currently spend most of my time in LA. <laughs> it's really a a bit of a trip, I'm sure, just going from you know how can I get into the music scene in England and London, yeah. but then ending up in Los Angeles. Well, I think anyone who, who wants to get into music or show business or anything can relate to the idea that, you know, just that first stage, that first level up feels can feel almost impossible. You know, I grew up in Birmingham and I didn't necessarily have the what I would have thought was the arrogance to even get to London, let alone leave the country with my music. I didn't think anyone would ever pay me to make music. It didn't happen, hadn't happened to anyone I knew. So that would have been a fantasy, you know, and as a teenager, um, there wasn't the kind of visible success, you know, we're talking pre-internet here, we're talking late nineties. So I didn't, I couldn't see anyone like me out there doing it. Um, music was, everything was much more removed and things were much more tribal. Um, I did eventually move to London and I got into hip hop and I just wanted to work with hip hop artists and grime artists in London. And again, I never dreamed of, of traveling with my music. Um, but evidently, you know, just, I've seen the world, you know, I've, I've been very lucky to visit, I don't know, 40 countries make, playing music. Isn't that crazy? So um, I kind of overshot. I just wanted to get down <laughs> to London and drink some beer and try and talk to some girls, but I ended up in Hawaii. <laughs> Man, what a, what a good overshoot. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you, 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 you're teeing off on the first hole and you accidentally get a hole in one on, like, the 18th. 
you're just looking around like, you know, I've never really done this before, but that's good, right? Exactly. That's pretty good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do you remember, like, you, you mentioned that you just wanted to work with uh, hip-hop artists, gram artists when you moved to London. Do you remember the first time you kind of heard a hip-hop song and it really caught your attention? Yeah, I was eight years old, and I think it was the first time I'd obviously heard hip-hop before, but not consciously, and um, it wasn't ever present in the way that it is in North America. Um you know, we, we were influenced by hip-hop without knowing we were. So, you know, we probably wanted to wear the trainers or the sneakers um, and probably wanted to have, you know, a certain cut of clothes or whatever as kids. But we didn't know why. But hip-hop has just has such a big influence worldwide. But the first time I registered um, sort of almost intellectually that this is a genre of music was when I got hold of a, a cassette tape um, it was a hip-hop compilation, and my favorite track on there was um, Eric B. and Rakim, uh, and I think it was Move the Crowd or Eric B. for President. It was one of those two tunes, and I just thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> and, I mean, the whole tape was great, but I just thought this is... I was particularly impressed with Eric B and Rakim. And then I went and got paid in full the album. So I would have been eight or nine and I was trying to beatbox and no one I knew was into hip hop. It was, it was like being into snowboarding or something or I didn't, you know, ice skating. You don't just have a bunch of homies who are also into it. It's not like in the States where it's hip hop's everywhere. So it was a, I didn't tell anyone because I didn't think anyone else would be interested, you know? Um, so it was kind of a private thing. And then I didn't really, you know, get a chance to be involved in hip hop until I was in my twenties. It was that, a was that kind of a, a, a first taste dynamic experience when you get to London and you start getting into maybe a bit more hip hop and seeing the scene, like this is what it is. This is how it is. Or had you had enough experience with music at that point to where it wasn't all that different? Um, well, I'd, all, I'd been working in different genres, you know, as a, as a teenager. I'd been in grunge bands and Britpop bands. And for anyone listening who's scratching their head saying, what's Britpop? We're talking about bands like Radiohead and Blur and Oasis um, and the whole, you know, the, the scene that they came from of, of very unapologetically British bands singing in an English accent um, and singing in their own regional English accent, which very sadly has been forgotten. Uh, everyone seems to just want to sing with an American accent now. But I'd, I'd been, as, you know, in my late teens playing in like in a bunch of bands, mainly as a drummer, which I think is interesting. Um, that I then got into making, you know, programming drums and, and being a beat maker. So I was a drummer on that scene, and I even played in a heavy metal band, which is a real discipline for any musician. Um, so by the time I, I was like in my early 20s, I was kind of bored of, of guitar bands and stuff, <laughs> and I thought, I'm never going to get signed strumming this acoustic guitar. So I thought, what can I do that's different? And I, I guess I somehow ended up revisiting... Um, revisiting hip-hop sort of 15 years after I'd first fallen in love with it 
I've just pulled up the track listing on the World Wide Web. So you've got um, Eric B and Rakim. You've got Grandmaster Flash, Derek B, Salt and Pepper, uh, Fat Boys, Africa Bambata, Dougie Fresh, um, Eric B again, Cookie Crew, and a, cu- a couple of like house things as well on, on the cassette because I guess the genre of hip hop wasn't necessarily in the 70s and 80s always just existing on its own i think with electro and house they they kind of had their overlap um so this would this cassette released in 1988 is an example of how people were kind of throwing house and hip-hop onto the same mixtapes um you know you've got it's, it's worth Googling. This is like a little time warp. You know, you've got Dana Dane, Cool Mo D, Bomb the Bass, Sweet Tea, Whistle, Spider D. I mean, it's 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 a real like time warp for me going back to being seven or eight years old. Um, but yeah, I mean, that sows seeds and it, it meant that when I eventually put my first record out on universal records here in london i i i sampled an eric b and rakim um drum loop from the remix of move the crowd and it's not on it's not on the main album i think it must have been a bonus track or something but it's that's the bit where you can steal the drums because obviously the rest of the time he's rapping over it and I remember when um, Kanye heard that song, he's like, where'd you get those drums? And I was like, Eric being Rakeem. And he's like, yeah, word. And I was like, yeah, paid in full. Uh, it's uh, Move the Crowd, the remix. And he's looking at me like, okay, you're not just, <laughs> you're not just listening to, you know, Hey Ya and think that you're a hip hop fan and listening to 50 Cent. I was actually going in and finding remixes and stuff. Yeah, what was that first experience meeting Kanye like what point were you at in your career I had put that record out and he had heard that song so I was in a band called Mr. Hudson and the Library mm-hmm. um, and just pulling up the track listing of my own album <laughs> can't hear my, can you hear my fingers on the keys yeah, a little but you know it's Mr. Hudson's <laughs> fingers on the keys it's what people so, pay money for it was a song called Cover Girl, and I ended up, I mean, I ended up replaying the drums and, and crediting the guys with some publishing, but, um, yeah, it's it's Cover Girl, and um, I think he, you know, this we're talking about, like, 2007 here, so not a lot of people were doing that kind of thing, and I think he enjoyed, he must have enjoyed hearing, the, the like, the MPC drums and a dude with an acoustic guitar and I think that appealed to his his ear. Now the reason he got hold of the album, Virgil Abloh actually played him the record back in 2007. I think they were in Japan at the time. So he, he knew who I was when I met him, which is kind of a better way to meet somebody. It's nice for your reputation to precede you rather than the sales pitch. I mean, I respect say, for example, Big Sean had to, like, cold call Kanye at a radio station and say, listen, my name's Big Sean, you need to hear me rap. 
So I have like, you know, great respect for someone who can do that. But I would, I didn't have to do that because DJ Semtex was like, Kanye, this is Mr. Hudson. And, and you know, the eye, we all know those eyebrows that go up when he's interested. And Kanye was like, word, okay. And he pulled his fiance over and said, this is Mr. Hudson. This is the guy that sings that song, Cover Girl. So I didn't really have to say anything. I was just like, That's, <laughs> that is me. And I started singing the song. And he said, why are you singing to my fiance? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Sorry, man. I mean, it's a love song. I can't sing it at you. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, could have done, but um, so you know, that was just a quick meeting in London back in 2008 or whatever. Late, no, it was probably late 2007. He was so. What would he have been promoting then? Graduation. Was that a glow in the dark tour? No, before, this, before, this before the tour. Okay. Yeah, so probably Sorry. graduation. So yeah, because that came out September 2000, 2007, right? So I would have met him in like July, August, because he was in London playing the album to the record company. Nice. Um, and I guess another bit of luck on my part was that DJ Semtex was doing the the street team and the promotion and you know part of the marketing team for the album and he's that's also who signed me to Universal so it was therefore DJ Semtex who introduced us he made sure that I was in the room you know right place at the right time and luckily Virgil had played in my album so all I had to do was say yes it is I <laughs> I is it I am me and then we reconnected, um, he was probably, probably that, that fall, he came back to do some shows, but I, it might have even been before the record came out, because it wasn't Glow in the Dark, because I did the Glow in the Dark tour with him later when, when I was signed, to, you know, just after I signed to Good Music, so um, he did some shows in the UK, and I remember going up to Manchester on Semtex, DJ Semtex's advice, because he said, "Look, everyone's going to be at the London show. You won't get a, you won't get thirty seconds with him. But if you go to the Manchester show, there'll be nobody backstage, and you can chat to him for half an hour." And that's exactly <laughs> what I did. And I remember being out on the fire escape, and we were talking about drums. And I think we must have been talking about the drums on Cover Girl, and that was when we had the. Eric B and Rakeem conversation because he wanted to know where the drums are from. And I, I kind of must have, in my tone of voice, been like, I can't believe you don't know where the drums are from. Why are you asking me? <laughs> it's from Paid in Full. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that was a pleasant surprise for, you know, this posh white English guy to be like saying, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's Eric B and Rakeem. And I had the privilege and pleasure of meeting his mother and we, you know, we talked for a little while and then I felt like I was in a movie because he said, right, I've got to go and sort of dived through the paparazzi and the fans into a limousine and disappeared. And there I was sort of standing in the rain, so to speak, <laughs> and just went back to my hotel, which sounds like the end of an Ernest Hemingway novel. Um, but that's exactly what happened. 
I was on my own, you know, I just went back to my hotel and thought that was pretty cool. So that's where it all started. Man. And then uh, it seems like that was very much a, a tipping point from that point on. You go on to 808s and Heartbreak and then your solo work and then off into like the last 10 years where you've been collaborating, contributing and just constantly being a, a, a voice in the pop music and music landscape. It's, you know, it's been a, it's been a ride and um, I've had a lot of, incredible experiences and I hope they continue and um, you know it's, I was just doing a, a photo shoot this afternoon here in London and we, we wrapped up the shoot and uh, the pho photographer you know he's been professional he wait is a young guy he waited till the end of the shoot to start asking me questions about you know some legendary shit and I which I appreciate it. You know, he didn't, he wasn't doing it during the photo shoot, but at the end he was like, can I ask you some questions about, you know, some of your collaborations and at the end of the conversation, and it's kind of good because it, it maybe kind of stirred some memories for us to talk about now, but, um, and some ideas, but he said to me, you've had a unique journey. And I thought, yeah, you're right. And I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Um, it makes me think, given the, I guess, bookends of albums at this point, from Straight No Chaser to When the Machine Stops, you have really gone on that journey. It's been yeah. that 10-year that period. Did you notice uh, a difference between the process and approach to Straight No Chaser and then the approach to When the Machine Stops, just based on uh, this odyssey that you've had? I think in some ways, we, you know, I'm sort of, for all I've traveled, I often end up coming back to the same place, to, to the piano, to, to my software of choice, which is Logic. I still like the same kind of drum sounds, the same kind of drum patterns. I still like to overly produce my voice and make it sound a bit like a, a sad robot. You know, some things don't change, and I think it's okay um, you know, there's, there's may, maybe there's two types of artists. There's the ones that keep changing, you know, your um, Childish Gambinos, your Kanye's, your David Bowie's, your Bjork's, or Bjork as we're meant to pronounce it. And they're always evolving. And then there's the other, the other cats that just say, I found my seat on the bus. I'm happy here. Um, and I think that I've gone off and done a lot of things. And then when it came back to making my own record, I think I wanted to reassert my sound and just say, do you know what? It, was not, it ain't broke, don't fix it. The difference really between the records is how I made them because I feel like on Straight No Chaser, I didn't know what I was doing. And when I got to mix the album or half of the album, I, half of the album I mixed in London with um, Andrew Savers, the other half I mixed with Manny Marikin in Los Angeles, who does a lot of um, a lot of top records, including Kanye's stuff. And Manny was like, "Man, where did you, where, where did you record this? A cardboard box?" <laughs> I was like, "Thanks, Manny. I tried really hard on this, Manny." <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was probably singing into the wrong end of the microphone, and um, 
it probably did sound like I'd recorded it in a cardboard box. Anyway, fast forward 10 years later and I do know what I'm doing and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of, of when the machine stops from a sonic standpoint. I, I really kind of spent a lot of time um, on, on the sonics. I mixed it myself and then I sat with the, um, the mastering engineer John Greenham in LA and he'd just done the, the Billie Eilish stuff and I grabbed him before everyone else did I drove over there and I was like you are mastering my album please <laughs> turns out he's an English guy he's a, he's a well spoken Englishman and um, I sat with him and mastered the record and at the end he was like, he's like I, I like your album he's like you, you've done well and he said just so you know I've never let anyone just sit on the couch f- the whole time before but um yeah we ended up becoming friends which is very very much like my process i love you know it's like it's as much about collecting people as it is making records yeah i mean that's what's kind of in the story that you told about how you met kanye that that was kind of part of it right it's the people that connected you and your work was absolutely part of it but that's only part of the recipe uh, the people are such a crucial element to just yeah, where I mean, you get to in life. Absolutely. If, if Virgil hadn't played him the album when they were working on, you know, sneaker designs, then he wouldn't have been able to say, I like this. And Virgil, you know, then said, I, you know, I can connect you guys. Um, and if maybe if Kanye and I hadn't had that, that, you know, if I hadn't have, sort of accidentally flirted with his fiance and if we hadn't met in Manchester and talked about sampling Eric B drums, maybe it wouldn't have resulted in, in, you know, just out of the blue, me getting a a phone call from the head of Mercury Records, which is the label within Universal that I was signed to. Jason Eiley called me. Funnily enough, I was back in Manchester. Um, and he said, you know, how would you feel about Kanye West executive producing your next album? Sounds pretty so good. So it comes down to people having conversations and making phone calls. And I think for any anyone who's listening who who is, is trying to look for the keys to get into, to be involved, to be more involved, to have creative success... Just remember, it is a, it's about people. I feel like the music is the fun bit. It's almost the easy bit. But it's it really is about people. And that's not about blowing up someone's phone or flooding their um, DMs or, you know, don't, don't be a pain. But just have meaningful, find people you can have meaningful conversations with and constructive conversations those can be very short ones you know leave a meaningful comment don't just say check me out i'm next i'm you know i've got (laughs) i've got beats or don't say what everyone else is saying it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's big and famous and got grammys on the mantelpiece it could be you don't know who's gonna who's gonna change your life so if you're always having meaningful interactions with people and doing good work, I think the rest is just 
you could call it fate. The rest just figures itself out. It's like laying seeds for something that's going to flower. But the more yeah. seeds you lay, the more positive interactions you have, just the yeah. more opportunities there are. I like that. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. I'm putting, Use it in a song. Yeah. I said that I said that um, today to somebody, uh, you know, at the photographer, because I, I haven't seen him for a couple of months. He was like, you know, I was thinking about what you said about blah, blah, and it's changed the way I look at this. And I was like, ah, I put a seed in your head. You know, you can, we can put little, maybe that's what I did with, with Kanye was just, I just put a seed in his head, which was, there's this weird English guy who <laughs> likes hip hop and sings sad songs. And funnily enough, that was kind of relevant when he wanted to sing sad songs, you know, so he thought, get that, get that English guy on a plane over here was that i've never really thought about it in that way because i i think people tend to go back and forth on 808s between looking at it for its almost vicarious enjoyment of getting to be put into that headspace or even just like resonance enjoyment of like this is the emotion that i'm feeling right now and this album really like connects with me being in this state of mind yeah. um but also thinking about like the human elements of it, like this really is something that Kanye was expressing and trying to express that he was going through something. And for you being a collaborator on that project to kind of go in and have that dynamic between he's really trying to express something uh, core to what he's going through this intense this intense loss but we're also looking at it also as as music was it was that something you were thinking about at the time or was it kind of the vibe or I guess what was that I'm usually thinking was? about lunch um <laughs> but you know and honestly um while we were making the record I didn't know what it was going to be and that was my observation about my, my hip-hop friends full stop was I think I must have emailed home to somebody. We don't know what we're doing till we've done it. But I meant that like socially and um, not just musically. I just felt like everything was happening so fast and, you know, meeting so many people. And often I wouldn't be given any warning that, you know, Drake was going to walk in or, you know, Young Jeezy or whoever I was going to meet that day. I didn't know they were coming. I didn't know Common was coming. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know T-Pain was going to rock up with a bottle of Louis Trez on a cushion. Um, we I didn't know what we were doing until we'd done it, but maybe Kanye did. I, I didn't know how much he had planned out. Maybe he didn't want to tell us in case it would affect the process, but um, it's, it's, it's interesting that I definitely didn't know. I was just trying to help. I was just trying to help make good songs. And I think only looking back 
now with the benefit of hindsight do we know that as a team we kind of created this this almost like architectural space it's like a room you can walk into either because you know you need to be there or you walk in and you're like wow this is really therapeutic listening to this music and then of course as you say there's the the autobiographical element which i you know there's kind of two schools of thought some people say would say that a piece of art should exist in its own right without any context but personally i love knowing what chet baker or marvin gay or you know jay diller was going through when they made a record you know isn't listening to donuts more powerful knowing that he made it in hospital um yeah, not that it's my so. favorite jay diller record but but you know he was sick and he was making this he's just like just that that you know that passion it's just like knowing through the wire came after Kanye's car crash. Just exactly, like <laughs> and you can hear it. Yeah, it, you can hear it, it adds an element. Yeah, so I think it's all the more powerful that people feel that when they're listening to this record, and I think it's valuable to a lot of, particularly guys. I know it's we shouldn't be talking about gender in 2019, but from my limited experience of talking to people, particularly guys don't necessarily have another record or project that they can go to when they're feeling that way. Um, and I think, he, I think he gave permission to a lot of people, not just in hip hop to process fe certain feelings. And I think they can do it and they can be more stoic because they know he was going through it as well. And I think the combination of, um, his story and the listener's story when they resonate that's kind of sublime isn't it it's it's powerful the one thing i wanted the other thing i wanted to say about um the process of eight recording 808s and heartbreak the two interesting things for me is um one even though the records deal deals with sadness and loss um we had a great time making it it was fun, you know, it was, I guess, because it was cathartic and I know, you know, he was going through a lot, but I think for other members of the team, when they weren't in the studio, they were having a ball because we were in Hawaii. So I'm playing basketball, <laughs> um, you know, I'm eating wings, I'm going swimming, <laughs> I'm going on bike rides. I've never been to Hawaii before. You know, so it was it was kind of like a vacation outside of the studio and then obviously serious in the studio. But once the record was finished, I seem to remember playing a lot of Mario <laughs> or Mario, as you guys call it. Yeah. So there was, you know, there has to be there has to be some comic relief as, you know, you even when you watch the darkest of Shakespeare's plays, there's still a couple of scenes where a comedian comes on you have to break it up you can't just be stuck in that one gear so there were some good laughs as well and some you know the characters involved people like no id and jeff basker and plain pat there were a lot of good laughs as as well and cuddy is so funny you know <laughs> 
Sean is funny. They're, they're all comedians, you know, and we had like Rhymefest and, um, you know, Really Doe and just good, good dudes from Chicago, man. I think that speaks a lot to the artistic process, too, that some people might think from the outside that if an album has that kind of tone to it, that that had to have been the dominant tone when working on it. But the, often the process is way more multidimensional in terms yeah, of just I, what the attitude is and atmosphere. Yeah, I think sometimes for our insanity, we have to put ourselves in the opposite mood. And somebody told me recently that um, Rothko, um, whose you know, paintings are, are these huge blocks of color that, that we're all familiar with, um, apparently he painted the dark stuff when he was happy and painted in happy colors when he was sad. He's like, we're always looking to kind of balance out the just being alive, the experience, you know? That's really cool. Um, Isn't it? Uh, earlier, when you had mentioned your process with uh, When the Machine Stops and talking about... Um, you know, you, the stability of your sound or kind of returning to your sound, it made me think of T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets, uh, the famous line, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Beautiful. It's always one of my favorite lines and sentiments. But That's it, as you were talking about that and just it seems that there are literary influences and throughout your career but i mean even with the album title uh when the machine stops uh, has are those influences uh typical for you big for you i think sometimes they're not conscious sometimes they they're just sort of bubbling away underneath you know um i don't tend to think oh i need to go and find something you know something <laughs> deep here i think they just they just sort of bubble up and um, they kind of inform lyrics and inform ideas. But I don't sort of drag and drop from literature, or, you know, from opera. Or I'm not trying to kind of be highbrow for the sake of it. I think pop music should be accessible. But if if my wordplay is is better because I've read a lot of books, then that seems, you know, that that would seem to be logical, wouldn't it? I mean, it was interesting to me that um, who's my guy from Florida? Um, flying private jet with the Roy, uh, look, pull up in the Demon on Goy, looking like I still do Freud. Who's, who's, and my mind's gone blank. Oh God! Pull up in the Demon. Exactly. Um, where's, my, where's my guy? Oh, Kodak Black, right. Kodak so Black. apparently, I could be completely misremembering, but I believe he has like the widest vocabulary of any rapper ever. And he's basically basically said that he used to just read the dictionary because he wanted to be, he wanted to have all of these words at his fingertips. And I guess he probably read more than one dictionary. You know, maybe it wasn't just the you know the Collins English dictionary. He's probably like reading dictionaries of slang and you know. I think that's that's always that's always good. Like you want to be overqualified 
you want to have more resources than you need. You don't want to be like scraping the barrel. You don't want to be going on rhymezone.com trying to rhyme the cats. <laughs> no, no. I remember uh, being in college writing poems and being like rhymer.com and just going <laughs> through. There comes yeah. a certain point where you've done enough of the work to where uh, that's not the resource that you turn to because you've kind of graduated from that. Yeah. Um, I'm reading something else here that says that um, Aesop Rock has the largest vocabulary in hip hop. I feel like I've heard that before. I haven't listened to a lot of Aesop Rock. But, um, you know, these statistics, I guess it just depends on your algorithm, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's going around and necessarily <laughs> defining it or even the quality of it? Yeah. Um, well, so with when the machine stops, I noticed, uh, and I got kind of excited by it, that Johan was a producer on a few tracks. Yeah. And I had a moment of going like, that can't be the same Johan, can it? Because I was a I was a big fan of Yeethoven. Um, yes. And actually went to New York City to see right. the concert. And Good man. Briefly got to meet him after. I kept trying to interview them during the time, but um, it was exciting to see uh, them kind of, or Johan kind of graduate from that into being part of the industry, getting to work with you. Um, how was working with him on When the Machine Stops? I mean, he's great. He uh, we wrote Chicago together, um, and he helped me with a couple of other songs, and. Yeah, he's just a character, and he's just, you know, he's one of those really useful people that just speaks his mind. He won't just say what you want to hear. He's not, you don't want to be with just yes men in the studio. You need people who are going to say, this sucks. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, nice to have. And not always as easy to find, I'm sure, as, uh, as some people might expect. Yeah, he keeps it 100 and he's he's you know his his background is is classical music and you know he he knows about harmony and arrangements and composition and that's that's really kind of allowed him to go in and offer something um i, I guess have a have a different angle and i know he's been working with big sean and uh, he was thrilled to meet kanye a little while ago and yeah, he's starting to get his legs under the table. I'm really happy for him. Yeah, and I mean, the song like Chicago, Sound of Grey, all the songs of When the Machine Stops, I've been uh, kind of bopping the last couple of weeks right. and very much enjoying. Um, it, it is interesting to hear some of the aesthetic from 808s and Heartbreak, but not done in such a, like a, a downbeat or like a down state like despite you know the lyrics are still there's a lot of longing there's a lot of um regret or questioning a lot of still complicated relationship dynamics but yeah. there's still something to the music that has a, a complexity to it or like a, a largeness to it that feels very different from 808s and i haven't heard a lot of music in the what 
11 years now between the two albums that I can really say this feels like uh, an extension of that, but a dynamic change. So it was cool just to be able to listen to When the Machine Stops and hear that sound done in just a whole new way that I can enjoy <laughs> like a classic, but get the updatedness. Because I think that's one of the things we all keep wanting from music, right? Like what's that next step forward? What's yeah. that next? Uh, I'm always trying to make something I haven't heard yet. Um, and even if I'm revisiting something, I'm still trying to say, how does this need to sound in 2020? Um, or, how, you know, can I make something that I haven't heard yet? Um, I think, you know, it, it's interesting that one of the contrasts with 808s is, you know, it, it, that's 808s and heartbreak. I'm not heartbroken. I'm, you know, the songs on the record are sad. Um, but it, what, an American word I love that I, that we don't really have an equivalent of is salty. <laughs> and I think the album's kind of salty. It's kind of like, oh, so you want to, you know, you, you want to ghost me now, huh? <laughs> it's like, it's just salty, but I'm still standing. You know, it's, it's a really interesting sort of genre, the kind of sad record, but you're prevailing. You know, it's the kind of characters that, Denzel Washington always plays. It's like he's going through it, but don't mess with him. Like he's still completely functional. Thank you very much. Like he will, he will still break your arm, but he's going through it. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of my headspace is, is, you know, I'm, I'm still doing my thing, but I'm dealing with shit. And it's kind of that soundtrack for me which is empowering in a different way. And I think we need that kind of kaleidoscope of emotion, right? Like sad, but still having the ability to keep your head held high and know that you'll be okay, but just wanting to express some things is exactly. something people need to hear just as much as like, I'm so fucking sad and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. It's like there's enough, there's enough people, you know, with kind of, I'm, I'm afraid to say sort of suicidal anthems. And I'm like, wow, I don't, I don't, I personally, I don't want to hear this. I don't think, I don't know. Like, is it, this is a question. Is it help, helpful for people to hear that stuff? I, I'm writing songs that are more about, it's like that old Frank Sinatra song, one for my baby, one for the road. It's like, he's, she, he's, he's been dumped. He's, he's heartbroken, but you know what? He's still in the bar. He's having another round and he's going to get laid <laughs> just, just with the wrong, just with the wrong person, you know, yeah. and he's yeah. going to get to work in the morning and he's, he's going to have a hangover, but he's going to keep it moving and he's going to keep throwing punches. So I guess I'm, I think I've been making music in that headspace personally. I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I like the idea that sometimes a step backwards can be a step forwards just in the sense that you're not staying put and yeah. you're not stagnant. And Pe Yeah, people love saying don't look back. I'm like, what do you mean don't look back? It looks great. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Why can't you have both? Why can't you have looking back, enjoying the present and planning for the future? People love the binary solutions. I don't, I can't eat gluten. I'm not eating carbohydrates, you know. I don't listen to classical music. I'm not, you know, I'm chill. <laughs> like, 
you know, whatever happened to moderation, like look back occasionally and learn from your mistakes and, and celebrate those wins, how it, you know, even if it was 15 years ago or five years ago or last week, you should be allowed to enjoy the past and learn from learn from the past, but also planning for the future. I don't know. I'm not I'm not the binary guy. No, binary kind of gets annoying. <laughs> it's just like yeah. there's there's more to this than just the the yes or the no, the black and the white. Like there's like, there's depth here. There's depth here. Absolutely. Life's more complicated than that, but people like binary solutions. They are simple. Yeah, they're brutal. Yes, yes, very much. Yes, but, you know, I think my, yes. I think of my English teacher who said, "I will never listen to hip hop. It's not real music." And I remember thinking, "Bro, you're missing out on some poetry. Some good, you know, you're just missing missing out on this." whole world of like wordplay and you love words and they're in the English language and you're an English teacher you know so um, <laughs> so people miss out by being binary they really do they really do well I, I think, uh, I think uh, we've reached the point of the last call and this is well, your that, uh, that was episode one <laughs> what's that that was episode one was 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 look, look forward <laughs> to the rest of the volumes um uh, so this is your uh, uninterrupted time to talk about whatever you want and thank you so much for being on the show man it's my pleasure yeah i would just i would just love to say to everyone go and check out the new album um you know it's it's the kind of the most pure statement i've made of, of my authorship um, in terms of having my hands on the steering wheel through the, the whole thing and I think it's the best thing I've ever made I'm, I'm really proud of it and I would love to hear people's thoughts hit me up on the usual channels I'm probably most likely to um, to see you on Insta probably most likely to be visible so hit me on at Mr. Hudson I love the record um, Give it a listen, play it in the car. It should sound good in the high end eye. And um, yeah, I better get working on the next one. So let me know what you think. Take care, y'all. This is the last call for alcohol.